there's a lot of opportunities, uh, I believe, with the advent of robotics uh, to, to really allow small businesses to be more productive. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 74. Today, we're talking about deploying intelligent robots at scale. Our guest is Samir Menon, the founder and CEO of Dexterity. Dexterity is a company that delivers full-stack robot dexterity solutions for logistics, warehousing, and supply chain operations. But even before founding the company, Samir has been on a mission to leverage robotics to, quote, make repetition optional. What does that mean? Well, here are three things you can expect from today's show. First, we're going to get Samir's backstory, what got him into robotics, we'll talk a little pop culture, and how he made the shift from academia to starting a business. Second, we're going to learn about Dexterity, their mission, why they're focused on the warehousing space, and how robots can be deployed at scale. Finally, we'll get some additional leadership and robotics lessons in the context of Dexterity's recent rapid growth. All this and more on today's episode. If you want to learn more, you can head over to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 74 to access any resource mentioned in this episode or to connect with Dexterity. Also, if you are enjoying this show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And as always, I want to highlight the folks that are taking the time to leave reviews. And this one goes out to an individual named Reno Perk with a recent review that reads, Hoppy as a retro encabulator IPA. Okay, this is a reference back to episode 66. Here's what this individual has to say. Most industry podcasts provide a cure for insomnia. Chris does a great job of selecting guests and asking the questions that keep us engaged. Especially liked the recent discussion with Mike Kraft about the Wayback Machine known as the Retro Encabulator. Well, Reno Perk, thank you so much for leaving this review. If you're intrigued by this review, you can always head on back and listen to episode 66, but that's not the call to action here. If you want to leave a five-star rating and review of your own and get a shout-out on the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And with that, let's jump on in. It sounds like we're heading to Boston today for a virtual drink or, a, I guess, more an audio drink with Samir Menon. Okay, Samir We've been looking to do this interview for a while. I'm excited to have you on. And in true manufacturing happy hour fashion, the first question has to be, if we were having this discussion in person, where would that be? Uh, well, I think uh, if we were having it uh, in the spirit of the true manufacturing and for us, warehousing logistics spirit, we'd be somewhere near Boston. I'm not a Boston native, so don't have a specific name, but any craft brewery would do. Uh, big mug of beer and uh, perhaps some nice packaged baked goods picked by our robots. 
All right. Yeah. Ooh, I love the plug for uh, baked goods bagged by robots. Excellent way to to jump into the theme and say we're having that big mug of beer. My first question for you is we want we want to get to know you a little bit. So what got you interested in robotics? Start start at the beginning. Excellent question. I've been interested in robotics since I was a kid. I grew up dreaming of robots. I uh, got into high school and you know when I was a kid there was this movie called. Uh, the high school of 2000 had robots in it. And I'm like, sweet, I'm going to have robots. But then they were none. Got into college, <laughs> still no robots. Got into grad school at Stanford. Finally, there were robots, but they were, you know, what we would call uh, level one automation. These are pre-programmed robots, very precise, very reliable. Uh, but, you know, they kind of do the same thing over and over again. You get a little bit bored after watching them for five minutes. And so spent 10 years at Stanford really digging into robotics. I think got to know more and more about what it's all about. Started off uh, working with simulation, with software, with hardware, with AI controls, algorithms. And the more I dug into robotics, the more interesting it was. It's just this amazing field, which is at the edge of uh, adoption in our society. I think it's, um, it's, it's gonna be a civilization changing event for us to truly adopt robotics all over. And it just gets me up every day in the morning. I love that. I want to ask you about your time at Stanford, right? But you brought up something else in that answer that that I have to ask about, and that it's you saw robots in a movie, right? Do you think pop culture is an influence for a lot of people that are in the robotic space now? Because we see them all over. We've seen them all over for decades, you know, from movies like Short Circuit that show it from like a humorous standpoint to you know, I guess the Terminator that shows it from a, a more noir, a darker standpoint. Did pop culture, do you think that influences a lot of people in the robotic space? It, it most certainly does. And uh, it's, uh, I, I try to categorize them into three broad, um, what you would call profiles. And so when you talk to, at least when I've spoken to people, there's, there's definitely the Terminator campus, like, oh no, robots are out to get us. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you know, there's the the cutesy kind of uh, silly eccentric. Like I, I I like to call it the Wally. If you remember yeah. the Wally cartoon, mm-hmm. so there's the Terminator, there's the Wally, and uh, then there's a Roomba, of course, which we already. Oh yeah, robots! I got a Roomba in my house. My cat plays with it all day long, and so the truth is uh, is a little bit different from all of those, of course. But uh, it's it's very exciting as we stepping into uh, today's world. You know, robots are seeing increasing adoption. Uh, we're stepping beyond the Roomba to drones, uh, autonomous cars. There's, um, you know, this massive initiative in robot mobility over the past 20 years, which I think has broadened the public's perception of a robot. And as we're stepping into uh, the next phase of robotics, which is try to move up even further ahead from mobility into intelligent robots working alongside us, I think a similar transition will happen again. Well, I think that's a great segue because as I understand it, when you decided to focus on robotics at Stanford, you were specifically interested in it from robots moving in a human-like manner, right? All the examples you just gave were the cutesy example like Wally, Terminator, the dark example, and then the, you know, home robots like Roombas, kind of fun, but you know, none of these really accurately depict robotics or really the the true value. So, you know, why did you decide to focus on robots moving in a human-like manner as the subject for your PhD? 
bringing back uh, you know the the uh, the comment that i made earlier when robotics started you know we've had robots with us since the 1970s the 1980s by the 1980s they were definitely in manufacturing sites and those those first uh, generation robots that were completely focused on precision you know they were very useful in manufacturing because you could make the manufacturing environment precise and if a robots precise the environment has to be precise otherwise it doesn't work imagine you're really precise and you know the world is shaking mm-hmm. for a mess up big time uh, by the late 90s early 2000s i think there was a popular consensus in uh, robotics as a whole across academia industry that getting robots to do stuff in the real world was pretty hard and so there was a transition away from robots that do stuff towards robots that move hence two decades of uh, robot mobility in drones roombas autonomous cars it's really done well Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started off at Stanford, you know, we were well along the way with the robot mobility initiative. And for me, robotics always had a, a personified aspect. Um, like, um, you know, I had my big teddy bear and, you know, I would always mm-hmm. imagine it was like running around. My kid has a similar tiger and he's like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to run around. And that personified aspect, I think, is is um, requires robots that have a form factor or maybe arms, the ability to do stuff, not just move. Mm-hmm. So that was very exciting for me. I spent a lot of time at Stanford uh, trying to understand how humans move. And humans have a very amazing ability uh, to move with skill, with grace, uh, with uh, a fluid intelligence that allows you to do things that you've never done before. And mentally build a model of the world, wrap your head around novel things, contextualize. Hey, I'm standing next to a uh, you know shelf. I've got to behave a little bit differently than... Uh, if the context is that I'm standing next to a conveyor belt. And so there's a lot of aspects of uh, machine learning and intelligence that go into allowing robots to operate and do stuff. That was very exciting to me. And, and you know, we spent almost 10 years trying to understand how humans move and how we could summarize uh, the essence of what it means to move in a human-like manner uh, using math and then use that same math to you know, drive the robots and have them move in a human-like manner. So it was very exciting and very excited to put that into production with what we're doing at Dexterity now. And and just uh, I'm going to ask about Dexterity after this, but just like a quick date check, right? Just so people have a, an idea of when this work was taking place. When did you start your PhD at, at Stanford? Uh, I started my PhD uh, in 2009, uh, finished okay. in 2017. Okay. So, I mean, things have been evolving rapidly, right? I mean, this is barely over 10 years ago. And, and my next question to this is, what led you to go from academia into a startup then, starting your own company? Ultimately, what led you to start Dexterity? Startups are quite an experience. And, uh, you know, if there's anybody out there in academia who's, who's thinking about this transition, you should listen. Uh, there's... When we think about startups, I think they come in many shapes and forms, right? And uh, for me, a startup is not so much about the startup. It's really about solving problems. And that was the mindset that I had uh, walking into uh, my PhD. I wanted to figure out some very interesting problems with uh, what it means to move in a human-like manner. And I think by the end of it, there was a very real problem approaching in the logistics and supply chain industry around 2016, 2017 in that uh, there's demographic change where a lot of folks are getting older. Uh, There's uh, younger generations aren't particularly interested in a lot of the very, very intensive uh, types of uh, work that are required. 
And once you start digging in into supply chain and logistics, it's the backbone of our civilization. Uh, we don't really think very much about uh, you know, what it takes to get a box of cereal on the shelf or to eat your uh, you know, bun in the morning or, or get a jar of ice cream. And so those problems were very interesting to me because I felt they had impact on a large number of people in the world. And there was a looming crisis which only got exacerbated uh, by uh, this whole corona pandemic. And so I think it was a problem of helping us, uh, the logistics and supply chain industry deal with a very crazy uh, labor shortage that, that really got me excited. And we felt like we had the skill set to, to do something about it. So let's get to know Dex uh, Dexterity a little bit more. You talk about the supply chain challenges pre-COVID as well, which I think a lot of people think all of a sudden COVID was where we ran into issues, but clearly that was taking place before. Can you, yeah. you know, let's say we're, we're having that big mug of beer. How would you define Dexterity's mission in simple terms if we were having this conversation over a drink? To keep it really simple, uh, if we take any repetitive uh, manual laborious work, Dexterity's mission is to take that repetitive work and make it optional. Right now mm. in our lives, there's a lot of times where we just have to do repetitive work. I've never met a single person in my whole life who said, hey, I wake up every day in the morning and my brain gets fired up to do the same thing I did yesterday. And yeah. not just that, I'm going to be fired up 20 years later doing exactly the same thing I'm doing today. Nobody does that. Right? So yes. let's, let's just, uh, if you like doing repetitive stuff, like I like eating food, it's a great amount, uh, type of repetition. I want to do that. Uh, I don't like uh, doing laundry. Let's get it. At least give me the option to right. get a robot to do it. So that's our mission. I love it because that was, that's actually, it's actually my next question, right? You say making repetition optional, right? I, I think I have a vision of what that might look like, but maybe give some examples of the type of repetition you're making optional or the type of applications that Dexterity is most focused on right now. Yeah. So uh, the type of applications that we are most focused on right now uh, are where, uh, so we're, we're very focused in uh, logistics and warehousing. Uh, mm -hmm partly uh, because it's been very intensely hit by events over the past few years and, and before that as well. Uh, within logistics and warehousing, which is a very massive uh, industry, uh, we're really focused on what we call high-speed uh, distribution. So when we think about high-speed distribution, what this means is a, a market in vertical uh, like parcel, where you have parcels, they come, you land them in a store, they get sorted in facilities, and they make their way across the country and somewhere else. You have to quickly pick one, you have to scan it, you have to check it, you have to route it into the right way. Uh, there's, a, there's a nonstop repetitive activity of, say, pick, scan, quality check, move a parcel. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are uh, this is the type of work that is that is very difficult to staff, where there's a chronic shortage of, of folks who want to do it, and where robots can have a constructive impact on society. Pars uh, packaged food is another high-speed um, distribution problem, where you have a bakery that makes say a massive amount of white bread. Well, you know, white bread's going to go 20 white bread in one store, 15 mm -hmm. in one store, five in one store. To, I don't know, 35 in a massive store. And somebody's got to do that entire distribution. And so anytime there's, you've got to move stuff really fast. It's not just about storing it. It's it's about getting it in, getting it out the door. It's a lot of manual work, uh, very hard on, on, on people's uh, bodies. And uh, there's a labor shortage. So those are the types of things that we are really focused on. 
two great examples from warehousing, scanning, picking, placing to food and beverage. Love that you put that into context for us. I'm going to flip the question a little bit now because that's what robots are meant to do, right? The repetitive tasks. So this is a bit of a philosophical question then. So what are humans really meant to do if this is the type of work that robots are picking up? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, humans really, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say what humans are meant to do. I, I think human beings are, you know, very uh, strong will and they like doing what they like to do. Sure. Uh, I think my, my goal is more enable people, to, uh, give them the uh, intellectual bandwidth, give them the time, uh, give them the productivity of uh, a modern industrialized economy to allow them to really focus on what they like doing. And so it's, it's not so much about dictating what people should do, but giving them more choice over, over their own future and their ability to allocate their time. Mm -hmm. Potentially uh, in an industrial aspect, of course, it's uh, obviously to, to transition people to higher value work. I think uh, once upon a time, you know, there used to be this thing called uh, uh, the printing press. And when it came along, you know, before that, people used to sit on papyrus and uh, I don't know, squid ink and just like scribe mm -hmm. on it, right? And the printing press came along and it helped everyone. It was a form of automation. I think uh, robots will come along and they'll help everyone uh, allow us to do better things instead of uh, describing work. We can actually author our own books. And so in the same way, instead of maybe performing repetitive uh, sort of tasks, you know, we, we can uh, allocate our intellect towards things that, that really push us to the next level. Well, I think even directly tied to robotics right now, right? You and I just a couple months ago were at A3's AMRs and Logistics Conference in Memphis. And I feel like the ter like there were different terms that would come up, right? Like robot Sherpas or crew chiefs, whatever they are, right? Different ways to describe the people that are leading robotics operations and robotics strategy, right? Because uh, the second that robots take over the work that someone else was doing, now you need people, very likely the same people, just repurposing jobs in many ways, leading that operation at that point. So that's one of the most direct tie-ins I see. What about is uh, do you see that as one of the big things as well? Uh, yeah, robot supervisors, uh, robot technicians. You know, another thing that's uh, that's happening is uh, there's there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, I believe with the advent of robotics. Uh, to, to really allow small businesses to be more productive. What does this mean? In the past, when we had robots, if you wanted to deploy robots, you had to set up a $100 million production line. Now, if you have intelligent robots, you don't need to set up a $100 million production line and make the environment perfect. You just need maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars in robotic hardware and a subscription to an AI platform. All of a sudden, uh, in the past, only really large businesses could uh, could leverage automation. I, I hope, and I, I, I would work uh, work towards allowing you know, small businesses or even individuals to leverage robots as tools that they come, they can pick up contracts, they can do their thing, use robotic mm -hmm. tool, and get a lot of work done vis-a-vis uh, -vis what they could have done before. So I would love to see uh, you know robotics enable people to, to sort of build their own small businesses, take a lot of uh, productivity into their own hands. Now, it's it's a bit of a dreamy goal, I must admit, and sure. <laughs> easier said than done. But I, I think that's another way this could go is, you know, I, I have like five of my robots and I go out, deploy them here or there. And, you know, I run my own small business. Can we help people do that? I think that's great. Well, I, I love that you're getting into what I envision as like the future of robotics, for lack of a better word, right? And I think, I hope I'm not making this up, but I feel like I've heard 
dexterity in the context of deploying robots at scale, right? That's one of your visions. So, you know, you give an example of these five robots, small business, et cetera. Can you go into what deploying robots at scale looks like maybe a bit further? I think that would help the audience out uh, quite a bit. Absolutely. And uh, I think Tesla provided an excellent analogy. And so let me just uh, use that analogy. Uh, when when any type of uh, new system comes in, initially, it's lower volume. It's, uh, you know, geared towards a very specific audience. It's high cost with Tesla. That was the Model S, which is a fancy car uh, geared towards a small audience and high cost. It's still pretty pricey. And that kind of allows you to step towards larger volume, uh, lower cost, like more mass market systems. So in the same way, Dexterity has started off with what we call large enterprise when it comes to thinking about robotics at scale. Our initial customers are all large multinational enterprise organizations uh, with uh, you know operations that span at least the whole country, if not multiple countries. That allows us to come in, have a very constructive uh, path to production, have uh, an ability to uh, go through the startup life cycle. As we keep on ramping, you know, there's there's a second uh, phase that would kick in outside the large enterprise uh, sort of uh, logistics warehousing space where we transition increasingly out of enterprise warehousing and logistics into uh, what we would call uh, mid-market or small medium businesses. And I think that's where uh, some of the true impact uh, will, will start to show. It's almost like this is the democratization of robots right now, right? Like it has it has been something that, you know, for various reasons, cost, accessibility, et cetera, have been limited more to these large enterprises. Everyone has visions of a car manufacturing facility with tons of robots, right? But what you're talking about is bringing this to small to medium sized businesses as well and allowing them to leverage that technology. And and, and on that note, I, I have another question related to the problem you're solving, right? This is a big theme on Manufacturing Happy Hour. When it comes to startups, you got to be focused on the problem, your market, et cetera. Technology is yeah. just the driver that enables, enables you to do that. So you're rethinking warehouses and supply chain, right? Of all the problems you could have solved with robotics, why was this the one that you doubled down on? Uh, I, I, I think with the problem, it comes down to uh, basically there's a technical aspect and then there's a market aspect. And when we look at uh, the path of technical progress, robotics is broadly, I mean, it's, it's very well established in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there's, there's uh, some edge cases which could still use robotics, but first pass, manufacturing has robots. Now, the, the technical uh, sort of spectrum is, is really a spectrum of increasing uh, complexity, uh, uncertainty, uh, sort of dynam uh, dynamic uh, variations in the environment. And I think uh, the moment you step out of a manufacturing plant, the first thing you do is you enter a warehouse. And so even this first step was uh, was was inaccessible to past technology. And so that's that's one for the technical one. It's a big market. It's the first step along the path of increasing intelligence and increasing um, ability to adapt to the environment. So that's that's an obvious first step for us, uh, coinciding with a very massive need in the market. So I think technically it, it, it was a logical next step and the market was really ready for it. So it was uh, it was a no brainer. Excellent. Now, another question I have around this, this goes back to something we brought up earlier about you started Dexterity before COVID was a thing, right? Before 
everyone was hyper aware of supply chain issues. Um, you know, what was what were the things that you saw that this was already becoming an issue? Because I think one thing that that's come up before, it's like COVID didn't necessarily change anything for our in- industry per se. It just sped a lot of things that were probably going to happen anyway up. But how did you realize there was a, uh, an opportunity here, a challenge here for the industry before something so obvious like COVID was in place? So I've uh, really made an effort throughout my uh, my career. Uh, you know, there's there's some people uh, or who who look at what's going on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at what's going on today and you respond to that, you're probably already too late, right? Uh, so so can you backtrack? Can you think about what's going to happen a few years from now? And so let's take a, a industry like warehousing, right? How can you predict what's going to happen a few years from now? Well let's let's look at the life cycle of a warehouse today there's a fully functional warehouse you know one step before that uh, it was a warehouse that maybe only had its equipment before that it was an empty warehouse where the equipment was still to be installed uh, before that it was a plot of land right and uh, when it's a plot of land then you don't know what's going to happen with it so, but uh, that being said you can definitely backtrack all the way you know, to say hey is there a plot of land that's getting converted into a warehouse because you know what, two years later, it's going to be a warehouse and one year or two years after that, it's going to be a warehouse full of equipment. And one mm-hmm. year after that, it's going to be buzzing with activity. So looking at the real estate market was actually a pretty interesting thing that we did. And it was a great leading indicator uh, in that warehouse construction had grown, I believe, like seven or eight X in the past uh, five, seven years before uh, COVID hit. And so there's a lot of warehouses being constructed, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a good sign that four or five years later, there's going to be a lot of work to be done. Mm, paying attention to the signs, paying attention to real estate. I love this. Now, given everything that's going on, would you say robotics are being adopted at the pace you'd expect right now? Or are we slacking? Do you think there could be more? What are your thoughts on that? I think uh, the industry is, is full steam ahead. The the tricky thing uh, with, with adoption is that... Uh, when we look at mission critical systems like logistics and supply chain, nothing can go wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you mess up uh, one uh, parcel delivery, there's a very, uh, very annoyed person at the other end, right? You uh, you go out and crinkle the packaging of a loaf of bread, but guess what? That's the only one that doesn't get bought. It's still sitting on the store. I, I've always gone to a store, there was like a little dink box or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm like, oh, not that one. Everything's perfectly yep. on the inside, but just psychologically, it doesn't feel right. Like, why do I totally, get this, you know? and uh, or a can that's a little bit bent or something like that. And so, anytime you're in a mission critical uh, application, it's important to realize that uh, the system must work perfectly. And uh, the tricky thing uh, with uh, with robots is that they learn, right? And they don't learn overnight. They take some time uh, to to really get exposed. So, I think within the confines of uh, the fact that. So mission critical application, we can't tolerate very much going wrong. And uh, there's a certain ramp up in technology. I, I think we're moving really fast, uh, like really fast, faster than we anticipated. Let's put it that way. Before I wrap up this portion of the interview, I think one question that's that's in my mind, it's like we're talking about democratizing robots, making them more accessible, deploying them at scale. You know, what what's an actionable piece of advice that you would offer for manufacturers out there that are like, yeah, you know, there are certainly there are things that I could automate or that I could deploy robotic robots on, but I just, I haven't 
been able to do it before, costs, whatever the issues are. What's the actionable piece of advice that you give people, whether it's a mindset mindset shift or a way to get started with robots today where they can start getting on that journey so that way we really truly can start seeing robots get democratized? Uh, I think the most uh, critical thing is to understand that uh, even if you decide to press the go button and you say, all right, I'm in, I want this stuff, there's going to be some time, right? It's, it's not like you're going to say, go give me 10,000 robots and they land at your doorstep tomorrow morning. It just doesn't happen, right? And 10,000 is usually a very small number when it comes to the larger scheme of things. So my uh, my two cents uh, as, as somebody who's been there in the trenches is that if you are thinking about deploying robots, uh, you know, come talk to us now. I think you need to have the executive vision to work against a multi-year timeline. You know, this is a bit like uh, digital transformation in the IT systems. You didn't computerize your entire um, non-computerized system overnight, right? Like it took a long time. And so getting the ball rolling, even if it's uh, rolling in a limited manner to allow you to understand the problem better, uh, to build a working relationship, to allow sort of vendors to build out that supply chain and deliver to you, I think getting the ball rolling soon is extremely important. And one has to have at least a few years of future vision to, to make it go. I love really the em- yeah, no, I, I love the emphasis on vision and planning, right? I think uh, there has been t- there have been too many knee jerk reactions to digital transformation or all these buzzwords we hear where someone's like, we got to start now. It's like, well, yeah, you need to start now, but you need to really start planning now and recognizing it doesn't happen overnight. So, and for everyone listening out there, by the way, we'll have links to Dexterity over at manufacturinghappyhour.com. Dexterity.ai is the quickest way to get there. But for ways to connect with you, we'll make sure to have those over on the show notes page. I do have a few wrap-up questions before uh, before we get out of here. And one of them is, you just landed your Series B funding round to the tune of $140 million. So what's next for Dexterity? Um, I think next is we're uh, we're taking that capital. Uh, uh, by the way, very grateful. A quick shout out to our investors, Kleiner Perkins, uh, Lightspeed Ventures, Obvious Ventures, uh, B37. There's a few others. Uh, we've uh, you know really benefited, I think, from having investors who could see the vision and were ready to double down. Our Series B was an internal round. We didn't go out to the market. Like uh, we, we just closed it out, and uh, we're putting that money to use, building out the infrastructure to really deploy robots. You know, by uh, transition, kind of from the hundreds uh, to the thousands and beyond. Yeah, and 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 one of the questions I always have is this is more of a leadership question than a technical question. When you get that type of funding, right? There's a scaling question within your own company, right? So how do you lead? through this scale up that you're going to have to do as uh, the leader of Dexterity? Uh, so I think the, the the important thing to realize is 150, uh, 40, whatever million dollars, it sounds like a big number, uh, but it does run out pretty fast, right? Like it's uh, in a capital intensive business. When, when I think of scaling, uh, we, we tend to be pretty uh, sort of uh, conservative and you know, we run a very lean ship. Um, it's not like, the hype-driven valley startup where you know you start buying gold-plated shoes and things like that. No, I still buy twelve-dollar <laughs> old navy shoes. You know, yeah. so there's uh, it's 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 pretty important to focus on what is really important and what what really delivers the long-term success. And for us, uh, building out an operations organization, uh, building out a customer support network, 
uh, making sure that we have access uh, to sort of uh, engineering personnel who can mm -hmm. maybe handle any sort of customer requests as they come in uh, to make sure that we have our existing product lines uh, and our existing product lines are in fulfillment, uh, you know, which is like distribution. We have existing product lines in parcel, in, uh, in uh, sort of industrial distribution, mixed case palletizing, depalletizing, that those are augmented by, by new product lines that would allow us to capture the entire uh, sort of end-to-end -end experience in a logistics workflow. Uh, beyond that, uh, working with our supply chain network, as you know, there's a supply chain shortage of just about everything. Right. We yep. need to lock in some inventory. You know, if you have to deploy some robots next year, you kind of have to place the orders now and and really build those relationships. So, uh, the 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 money is expended in in ramping up the team, building our infrastructure, keeping our product lines well staffed, and opening new product lines, and then just uh, building our supply chain connections. Well, I think the macro takeaway that I got from that comment is it's like, while it might seem like a lot of money, one, this is a capital intensive industry. So, you know, that money only goes so far. But the other thing I hear is, you know, money aside, you got to stay focused on the vision. You can't all of a sudden splurge on things you don't need, whether it's the gold shoes or whether it's something that isn't a business necessity, for example. Yeah. So I, I love the color you provided there. Last question I've got for you is we've covered a lot of ground today. I appreciate all the time you've taken. And by the way, congrats on that funding round. That is no small feat. What's Is there anything you wish I would have brought up that, that we haven't covered? Um, well, there's, there's one plug which I, uh, which I always like to put is uh, when, when as an outsider, when uh, somebody looks at a new industry, uh, you know, one needs some sort of mental handrails to really get a feel for what's going on. And uh, we put together what we call a six-level uh, sort of robotic progress uh, spectrum, and you know, it's loosely model of the autonomous driving industry's mm -hmm. uh, five levels of robot autonomy. And so, you know, the first level, of course, is pre-programmed industrial robots from the 1980s. Uh, the second level is the same pre-programmed sort of industrial robots, maybe swapped out with a collaborative robot, but now it has maybe a camera thrown onto it, right? So all of a sudden, it's got eyes and AI and uh, really cool and all of that, uh, but uh, it's still essentially what we would call a single task function, right? Like it's more or less doing the same thing right, in a structured environment. And so that's what we call level two. Uh, level uh, three for us is once we start leaving uh, the single task function behind and we head towards multitask. So you have robots that are working with other robots. They, uh, they you know, have the sense of touch. They have uh, not just uh, sight, but uh, maybe sound, touch, feeling, human-level senses, uh, the ability to operate in a very unstructured environment, share information with other robots, uh, cooperate with each other, maybe step out of the way and do something else if a robot's doing something in its own work zone. And so you really start approaching what we would call a full-time equivalent or an FTE around level three. Level four is when you really have the FTE nailed down, and that's mm -hmm. when robots are collaborating not just with other robots, but also with people. And they're really, mm -hmm. you have robots that are operating in a very, very robotic way, aka level three. Oftentimes, a person who's working with the robot, you know, it might not be very safe. It might be a bit of a pain. Robots operating in a robotic manner can make life hell for you. Suddenly, you know, a robot says, I need help. And, you know, 100 feet that way. And then this one says, oh, I need help. And I come running all the way back. And you're just like bouncing around like a tennis ball, right? So level yeah. four is that problem of human-robot uh, sort of interaction in a safe manner and an efficient manner. And if the robots need to be 2% less efficient to make a person, you know, 50% more efficient, so be it, right? Uh, level four allows us to really 
get the technical spectrum nailed down. Mm-hmm. Now you get to level five, which is where you rethink how you build your whole operations and redesign the operations, taking intelligent, collaborative, human robot interaction as a baseline and leads to a pretty different type of uh, operation when it, when we think about warehouses and whatnot. So we've been in production uh, with level four for almost two years now and uh, heading into, we're just deploying our first level five systems as we speak. Beyond level five, uh, we come to level six, which is where once you have enough robots deployed, uh, the robots actually have the ability to really help you optimize your entire network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, when we think of the flow of goods, uh, most of the uh, you know flow of goods are captured in a database, but a database tells you what is supposed to be going on. Most of the time it's 10, five, 10% different from, you know, hey, there's supposed to be 15 boxes of cereal on that shelf, but they were mm-hmm. actually 12. Why? Yeah. Well, one got crushed, you know, one got old and moldy, and one just uh, ended up on the electronics box because somebody just put it there. And so the robots can not just uh, sort of tell you what's supposed to be going on, they can tell you what is going on and actively fix stuff by working together in a team. So that's what we call level six, which is a few years away. But, um, you know, for anybody out there, you want to put your, um, Wrap your head around uh, what's going on in robotics. You know, just think about these levels. Level one, brain dead, pre-programmed robots. Level two, mm-hmm. art robot. Level three, you know, robots working in a team. Level four, robots and people working in teams. Level five, new warehouse. Level six, digital transformation. Excellent summary. And I'm glad you brought it up too, because I remember you referencing level one robots at the start of our conversation. So yeah. I'm glad you added that detail, because I know... The folks that are really into robotics have been listening all the way through this conversation today. So, Samir, I just want to thank you for taking the time to jump on today's show. For everyone out there, dexterity.ai or head to the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And Samir, hopefully we'll have a chance to have a beverage in person again here as uh, 2022 gets rolling. Would love to. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks a bunch. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Samir and the team over at Dexterity for helping make this episode possible. Coincidentally, non-coincidentally, Michael Patrick Perry from Dexterity was actually featured in our recent AMR and logistics episode we did at the A3 conference. He's in part two of those 12 interviews that we did, so six interviews per episode. Feel free to head on back to listen to that to hear about Dexterity from the perspective of another individual on the team. But as always, if you liked this episode, if you want to learn more, head on over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 74. That's where you can connect with Samir. That's where you can connect with Dexterity, get to their website. Their website's also super simple. It's dexterity.ai. Anything you need to do to follow up on today's show. Before we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Obvious Ventures. Obvious Ventures is a venture capital firm investing in entrepreneurs that are reimagining every sector of the global economy. They help transform legacy industries like pharmaceuticals, protein therapy, industrial materials, and manufacturing. And in fact, their managing director, Nan Lee, was just featured in episode 71 of Manufacturing Happy Hour. But as a tie into today's episode, they just launched their own podcast called Machine Visions. Samir was actually a guest on this show as well, and I'd highly recommend giving that episode a listen. I certainly 
certainly did as I was prepping for today's conversation. Anyway, to learn more about Obvious Ventures and the Machine Visions podcast, make sure to tune into episode 71 by heading to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 71. Thank you, Obvious Ventures, for sponsoring this podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. I love reading your reviews at the start of the episode, so if you do that, doesn't need to be long, could just be a couple sentences. All you got to do is hit that five-star button, type some characters to share your thoughts, and that's it. Head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you directly to the Apple Podcasts platform on your desktop or on your iPhone. And with that, that's a wrap for this week. Thanks as always for sticking around. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.